0: And this is the heart of the gospel, that the God who revealed himself to Moses as a God who is merciful and, and who expresses loving kindness and, and all of these things, that this God has met us in Jesus Christ. And so I just want to emphasize that today, that regardless of what we learn here, regardless of, of what we do here in our experience of worship, at the heart of everything that we do, it is this saving, redeeming, merciful gospel. And so my prayer for each of us is that we've embraced this gospel, that we have found the grace of God in Christ, been forgiven of our sins, and that we have discovered that God is indeed a merciful God. Well, so far in our series on Genesis, we have covered only two verses, one verse per week for two weeks. So we've been kind of going at a Uh, a little bit of a slower pace, but today I want to switch gears a little bit and do something a little different. Today what I want to do is to take a flyover approach uh, where we look at the big picture of the next set of verses that we're coming to. So uh, today might appear to be a little bit of a, a, a dramatic shift From last week, where we looked at one verse, and today we're going to look at quite a few verses. So our passage for today will be Genesis chapter 1, verses 3, all the way to 31. So go ahead with me there in your Bibles, if you will. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and we'll we'll read all the way to 31 and touch on uh, that that entire passage. So the title for the sermon this morning is God's Six Days of Work. The big picture, that's what we will be doing today. We'll take these six days of creation really as a unit. So you could read through uh, these and, and you could take them on one day at a time. But I think you, you, you can miss things if you don't take the entire unit and see the patterns that are developing as we go from verse 3 all the way to 31. But let me just ask you not to get too excited about our progress Uh, not to get too excited about the fact that, man, we're already at the end of chapter 1, because next week we're going to go back uh, to verse 3, and then we're going to work our way through the individual days. But we're only going to do that in the context of having a bit of a handle on the whole picture. And then once we've got a handle on the whole picture, some of the recurring elements and themes, then we'll go back and answer all of those those, uh, quote, well, no, we're definitely not going to answer all those questions that you have, but we'll go through and look at a number of the details that we see day one, day two, day three, and so on. So that's our plan for this week and for the coming weeks uh, ahead. So this approach helps us, I think, to keep our focus on God and not to get lost in all of the questions and issues that emerge in this account of creation because what can easily happen is you get a little sidetracked you're going through genesis 1 you start in the beginning god and it's all about god and you're 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 focused rightly and then all of a sudden you you get a little off course and you begin to get very much uh, in, in tree mode, you lose the forest for the trees, you begin to inspect all of the different trees and all the different uh, bark on the trees and all the leaves on all of the branches. The next thing you know, you don't even know what you're doing. You don't even know where you're at or what it is that, that this portion of Scripture is about. And so the hope is that by taking this as, a, as one unit, we'll be able to keep our focus on God. And indeed, our focus must always remain on the nature and character of God. That is the theme of the Bible. Who is God and what has he done? That's always the question that we ask when we come to Scripture. Our first sermon as we started this series two weeks ago was entitled Starting with God. And there are a number of things that we've already seen about him over the last two weeks. And it's amazing as you go into Genesis all of the ways that you begin to get a doctrine of God. That Moses is presenting to us in that very first verse of Genesis, he's presenting to us a picture of this covenant keeping God whom. He's presenting to the Israelites who, who made himself known to the Israelites through the, the plagues that he brought on Egypt and through the crossing of the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. And he fed them in the wilderness and he, he's protected them and he's promised them a land. He's given them his law. All of these things God has done for this people. And so Moses, who wrote Genesis, wants to make clear to this people, the people of God, who this God is. And so already... In these opening two verses, we've learned quite a bit. We've seen that he is eternal. He is before the beginning and he is without beginning. In the beginning, God created. Everything came to be, but God is. He is the I am. He is the creator who brought everything into existence. He is distinct or set apart, or we could even infer from this, he is holy. He is different from everything else. God is a category of one. There is God and then there's everything else. Very different from the gods of the ancient world where the deities began to take on the characteristics of all of the creation and and vice versa. So that the sun was a god and the moon was a god and the Nile was a god. And the gods looked like alligators and men and anteaters and so forth. Very different here. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the eternal creator, distinct God. He is also the triune God. We already get hints of this at the very beginning of Genesis. We're going to talk more about this today a little. But we get God and his spirit and we get his word. He is the triune God who exists in etern- an eternal fellowship of love. We already begin to see that emerge from the opening verses of the opening book of the Christian Bible. We learn that he is like a potter who carefully forms his creation and that he is a personal deity. He's a personal God who is intimately involved with his creation. So we see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters and we know that that God will soon breathe the breath of life into man and we know that as we here today as Christians, we know that God, the Spirit, will enter man through regeneration as the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us such that we are called temples of the living God. This is a personal God, one who is intimately involved with what He has made. So we've already seen all of these things. And today, as we come to the six days of creation, we see that this God is also a God who works. Now, we've kind of seen that already. I mean, that's, that's, that's always been there in the background. But today, I want to look at that explicitly, specifically in detail, that, that this God is a God who works. The text is both explicit and repetitious, about this at the beginning of chapter 2. So just look there in your Bibles, since you have them open already, to the beginning of chapter 2. After the six days are over, these six days of creation, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So hopefully, hopefully there it's very clear to us that what did God do for six days? He worked. And we're not going to talk about the seventh day now. We'll get to that. But we're looking at everything that preceded that, These six days of Work. So what does this general truth that God works imply for us? So that Before we go any further, get into any of the details, we can just kind of stop for a moment, pause, and say, okay, this is a truth that the biblical text presents to us, that God works. So what is or what are the implications for us when we consider that? Well, one commentator puts it this way. When the name work is given to God's six days creation... Human work is ennobled. It's a word we don't use very often. Human work is ennobled, made noble to the highest conceivable degree as being the copy of his model. Isn't that interesting when we think about that? Now, today I know that we don't just have men. Men here, uh, fathers, husbands, uh, men. We don't just have men, and of those men, we don't just have fathers and husbands, but I thought it was fitting Today, Given the fact that when we went through Ephesians 5, we talked about the fact that although it is the case that women will work and earn money for the family, and although it is the case that there will be periods of time in which men perhaps aren't working and earning income for the family, that that God's creation model, the pattern that he has given us found throughout the Bible, is that men are the providers for their families, that men are the providers for their wives. And so we looked at the relationship between a husband and his wife in Ephesians chapter 5, and we saw if we're, if we're to relate Christ to the church and a husband to his wife, that packed into that is a notion that we are to provide for our wives and by extension for our children in the home. And so I think it's fitting that we see here today with Uh, mostly men, I would say here, many of whom are fathers and husbands here in our congregation today, to consider this very clear, maybe obvious, maybe not so obvious fact that God works. So let me ask this question. What is your view of work? We have at the very beginning of the Bible that God upholds it. God models it. Have you ever considered that? As you've sort of gone through your daily work. We, we read a book on uh, how the gospel infu- influences how we think about our jobs. How the gospel infuses meaning into our work. And one of the things that the authors of that book, we did that in men's theology. And one of the things that the authors of that book pointed out was that we can fall into one of two errors with regard to our work as men. We can become idolatrous with our work, meaning that we elevate our work to be God. And so rather than making our lives about the glory of God and in submission to God, we make our lives about our work, what we accomplish, what our hands make. And that's what our lives are for. But another mistake that we can make is to be idle. In our work, And this does not mean simply that we just sit around twiddling our thumbs and don't work. But it also means the way we think about our work. That we can go through our day in such a way that we don't actually, we just glide through the work. We may accomplish it. We may do it well. We may do it efficiently. We may please our boss. We may make a check, a paycheck at the end of that period. But we just slog through. We just get through. We don't do it with any kind of intentionality or invest ourselves in it. And I think it's amazing that at the very beginning of the Bible, God is saying to us men, follow me, work as I worked. I also think that as we consider this idea, it helps us to think a little bit about about how we raise our children. So not a single dad in this room, I'm sure, has left home in the morning and not heard His son or daughter say, Daddy, why do you have to go to work? Daddy, don't go to work. Daddy, I don't want you to go to work. And it's kind of piercing. And we hear those words, we want to stay home. We don't want to go to work. But it's that dad who explains to his daughter or to his son what work is and that God worked. And that work glorifies God and work is fitting and work is good. And one day you're going to have to grow up and work for the glory of God. And so just a question. What is your view of work? And in what ways are you as a father acting as our heavenly father in modeling for your children the dignity and value and goodness, inherent goodness of work. Remember that Adam was put in the garden to work it and keep it. He was put in the garden to to cultivate it and, and take care of it. Work was not a result of the fall. Work with lots of headaches and stress and thorns and thistles and fruitlessness. That was an effect of the fall, but not work. Work was there from the very beginning. In Genesis 1 verse 3, and with man after he was created. So if you will at this time, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Last week, you didn't have to stand for very long. This week, it'll be a little longer. We'll be reading chapter 1, verses 3 to 31. This is God's word. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. Let me just comment for a moment. It's often been pointed out that the stars, and it is the case in the original Hebrew text, that the stars are mentioned as a kind of, and the stars. And it is true. When you read this, it's amazing. The most amazing thing that we tend to see are the stars. And the text literally says, God made this, God made that, God did this, God did that. Well, and he made the stars. That is the glory of our God. The stars are no big thing for this God. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. You will go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and just thank God for his word, and ask that his word will be effective in our hearts this morning, and uh, we also pray that, that what the Lord has sown in the hearts of the ladies as they've been away on retreat. I think 49 was the number of ladies who went away this past, uh, this past weekend on the retreat. That's 49 individual souls. And so we're, we're asking that the Lord would take what He's sown in their hearts this weekend and He will bear fruit in that. And that He'll sow in our hearts this morning and bear fruit as well. Let's pray. Our good Father... What a privilege to pray to you. We love you, God, because you first loved us. We worship you as our creator. We thank you that we get to, to just come together as Christians and meditate on your creation. We get to meditate not just on general revelation, that which we can see and observe and experiment with and test and, and draw out scientific conclusions from, not just your general revelation, but from your special revelation, that which you have spoken to us perfectly, purely, inerrantly, infallibly in your word, the Bible. So God, we praise you that we get to be here this morning to see you glorified through your word as our creator. And Father, we pray you'll do just that, as you sow your word in our hearts that, that none of us will be able to escape, so to speak, from your searching eyes that you will convict us of our sin, that you will, you will heal us with your grace and your mercy. God, we are asking for that, for your mercy. We know that none of us deserves to know you. None of us deserves to have you as our God, our Father. None of us deserves to have your precious Son's blood cover us. And so, God, we just pray that you would be merciful to us today, that you'd be merciful to me as I preach, and merciful to all of us in here as we listen to your word preached. Father, thank you for this weekend of retreat for the ladies of our church. We pray that for those who went, that you will take what has been sown and that you will bear much fruit in each heart. We're grateful for the leaders who who organized it. We pray that we would see much fruit come out of it, Father. And as we as men prepare for our retreat in a month, we pray that you would Give us preparing graces that you would prepare each heart and that you would give us uh, opportunity as men to be able to go. And that you'd prepare Tony Carter as he works on uh, what he will deliver to us from your word and as he prays that you would guide him spiritually and give him discernment. Father, we're so grateful that we can ask these things of you and that we ask and seek and knock and you listen. You open the door. You answer us. You respond. And so, God, we pray by faith now that you will hear this prayer offered here in our corporate worship and that you you would answer these prayers, God, you would be with us. We love you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So what do these 30 or so verses, you've seen them up there already, what do these 30 or so verses tell us about God's work? Well, I probably could have had about 20 points but I wouldn't do that to you. So what I've tried to do is just isolate these three, not not comprehensive or exhaustive by no means, but these I think are three things that we absolutely have to consider if we are to take these verses as a unit and dive into them and prepare ourselves for what we're going to see uh, when we begin to look at each of the days. And if we are to take stock of the Recurring words, the recurring themes in these verses. So three things I want us to see this morning as we go through. First, his word. And by the way, I'll just redirect you to the title this morning. God's six days of work, the big picture. And as we look at this big picture, we see his word. We see, secondly, his order. And then thirdly, his delight. So let me begin with this idea of his word. When we quickly read through verses 3 to 31, we are struck with all of the recurring language, as I just mentioned. And the first and probably most obvious repeated element is this phrase, And God said... Of all of the phrases and all of the verbiage that we find from verse 3 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 31, this is probably that thing that you associate most, perhaps. If you've had any uh, experience growing up in church or if you've been around the Bible or or folks who are Christians for a while, this is probably what you would associate most with these verses is this phrase, and God said. So I want to just quickly just plow through those. Verse 3. And God said, let there be light. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So in some ways, this would be considered a little bit of a skeletal structure for for understanding how each of these things are connected. This recurring phrase, and God said. So... It shouldn't be any surprise to us that when we come to the New Testament, we see the authors of the New Testament drawing attention to this idea that God created everything through His Word. Any reader of Genesis, anyone who opens up these these verses, the Hebrew people who would have had much exposure to these verses, would have constantly seen that recurring idea, "...and God said..." And indeed, we get this theology coming out in the New Testament. So Hebrews 11.3, listen to this. Listen to these words. By faith we understand that the universe was created, it doesn't say by God, it says this. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Now that is God. Don't hear me wrongly there, but I just want, to, want you to see the specificity that He's saying that it was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And this already tells us a couple of things about the science and religion, or science and theology discussion. Just on a very very superficial plane, we already see that Although the creation itself is obviously made by God and it reveals his eternal power and divine nature as Romans chapter 1 says. And that human beings are not without evidence for a first cause, for a first mover. Even to go back to an idea of Aristotle who was not uh, part of the people of God. That although there is evidence for all of these things, that that all of it goes back to God, we realize that man's heart is corrupt and sinful in suppressing the truth and leaning into unrighteousness. That he suppresses the truth out of an unrighteous heart that rebels against God. And so we have these words by faith. We know that it is only through the light of God's grace that a person can come to understand in all of its fullness that the worlds were created by the Son, as Hebrews 1 says, and here that everything was made by the Word of God. And the claim of the New Testament is that this Word of God is actually a distinct person Of God, who was sent to earth to become man. So, do you see how the Bible begins to fit together? That when we come to the very first chapter of the Bible and we read, and God said, and God said, and God said, we see extracted from that that God made everything through His Word. And then the New Testament writers want to say that that Word is a person. And so we get John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Distinction. And the word was God. Sameness. He was in the beginning with God. And here's the language. All things were made through him. By faith we know that the universe was created by the word of God. And here we see in John 1 that all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Isn't that amazing? That there's not one That God has created, including the angelic beings who fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Holy one of God, including Satan himself who tempted Jesus. Not one created thing, visible and invisible, exists but by God's word. He spoke all things into existence. And then we're told in chapter 1, verse 14 of John, those amazing words, And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. That is incredible. It elevates our minds up to worship Jesus in ways perhaps that we have not. Christ is God. And it is through him, the eternal word who became flesh, that God made all things. And throughout the Bible, we see this notion of the word of God applied also to the written scriptures. So this notion of word of God refers to the eternal incarnate son, the eternal son who became flesh, but it is also used to refer to the written scriptures, to the sacred documents, which are, Paul says, breathed out by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what does Genesis tell us about this word? It's clear to us that God made all things through his word, but what what does Genesis have to say, Genesis 1, have to say about this word? Well, notice what happens after it goes out. What happens after the word proceeds from God? Well, after the words and God said, let there be light, what do we read? There was light. And as we go through the rest of Genesis chapter 1, we see this amazing pattern that continues. Every instance of God speaking is followed by, and it was so, and it was so. And it was so. Every time the word goes out, we see that it happens. And this tells us two very important things about God's word. One, it tells us that God's word is effectual or efficacious. It also, secondly, tells us that God's word is authoritative. So let me just treat each one of those for us and we're going to think about how that applies to us. So, God's word we see in Genesis 1 is effectual. And here's what that means that means that God's word is entirely capable of bringing about the desired effect, it is effective. God sends it out, it works. God's word works, He sends it out. And things happen by necessity. Things are. It also tells us that God's word is authoritative. Even before we get to a doctrine of scripture. Even before we get to specific references to the written scriptures. We here get a theology of God's word. It's effectual and it is authoritative. It is by its very nature to be obeyed. It is a supreme word under which all things exist. It is the word before which all things must bow and to which all things submit. And I submit to you that we have this very clearly in Philippians 2. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, one day every person And and every inanimate object will submit to the eternal word incarnate, Christ Jesus, that everything will will submit to him and bow before him. It tells us that not only do we have an option, or not, it tells us that we that it's not about having an option to obey and submit to this or not, the Bible tells us that everything will one day be submitted to God's authoritative word. So it's effectual and it's authoritative and let me just draw out one implication for us. I want to go back to this idea that we have here this morning uh, largely an audience of men, fathers, husbands, some of you. And I want to just draw out this one implication for us of this truth that God's work, God's word is effectual and it's this. Do you trust in the efficacy of this Bible? As a father, as a husband. Let me ask it this way Do you believe that when God speaks, things happen? See, I would say to you that the fundamental reason that we don't, that we neglect the Bible. The fundamental reason that we don't give heed to the scriptures, don't read them, memorize them, meditate upon them, uh, the reason that we don't read them with our family members and have family worship together around them is because we don't believe the, the word does anything. That's why. It's not because you're too busy. It's because you don't have faith. It's because we don't have faith that the word of God goes out and does things. It makes things happen. And God said, and it was. And so the Christian who treasures the Bible, is a Christian who believes that the Word of God is effectual in every area of life and for our families. A man who neglects the Word of God is a man whose family will not work, so to speak. It is a man whose marriage will not work. It is a man whose life will not work properly. That is why the psalmist says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man Who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, that he will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Their lives are blown to and fro because they have no anchor in this effectual, powerful word of God to which we must submit. In which we must trust. So we see here clearly the beginnings of a theology of the Word that goes throughout the Bible. We see that God accomplishes his work by means of his word, but now I want to turn to another key feature of this chapter, and that is his order. This is probably the thing, if you, if you thought about Genesis chapter 1 and you were thinking about the, the language, you would probably say, well, the most, the most obvious bit is, is the and God said part, but if you were taking it as a whole, you probably, your mind would probably be drawn to what is the arrangement or the order of creation. So let's look at that, his order. One of the most striking characteristics of Genesis chapter 1 is this orderly arrangement of God's creative work. And here I want to draw your attention to four aspects of God's ordering. So four things, I didn't put these on a slide would have been a little cluttered, but four aspects of God's ordering. You can write these down. We see his directing We see his dividing, his developing, and distinguishing. Now I'll go through each of these. We see all of this here in this first chapter. So first, let me draw your attention to his directing. God's creative work is directed towards an end. It it has an orientation to it. It is ordered towards something. We could say it this way. It is teleological from the Greek word telos or end. It moves towards something. That target, that aim, that objective is clear for us as we come to two things, as we come to the language of good. So in verse 4, we see, and God saw that the light was good. And this is followed right, repeatedly by, and God saw that it was good. This is the second feature that's probably the most obvious to us as we go through this chapter. The first is that God said the second is good. And God said, good. And God said, good. Good, good, good. All the way through the chapter. And this tells us as we come to verse 31, when this little word very is put in front of good, that everything is moving towards something in and of itself. The water separated from the land where you have earth and seas, that's good. In and of itself, the sun and the moon and the stars, that's good. The vegetation is good. The beasts coming up from the earth, that's good. But only at the end of it all do we read very good. God is working towards something. So we see that in the language, but we also see that in the narrative itself. We have everything being created At the very very beginning, everything being created to prepare for plants. And then we have animals. We have birds and animals of the sea. And then we have animals of the land, the livestock, the creeping things, and the beasts. And then we have man. And so in verse 26, we see that God makes man in his own image. Man becomes his representative. God tells him that he is to have dominion over everything he has made. And what this tells us is that not only in the language, good, 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 very good, but also in the narrative, as you finally come to the creation that is made in God's image and that is over all of it, do you have the crown, the apex, the pinnacle of all that God is doing. So all of this tells us that God is ordering it towards an end. He's directing it. Secondly, he's dividing so he's directing, and then now we see that he is dividing. God divides his creative work into distinct units called days. So in verse 5, we see, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. The second occurrence, verse 8, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. No, I'm not going to go through and do all of them. There's six of them. Uh, There was evening, there was morning, day one, two, three, four, five, and six. God divides his work into these distinct units, and the text here calls these units days. Now, I'm not going to do it right now, I'm not going to do an exhaustive presentation of the different views on the days of creation. But what I will say is this from the language used, these are equal units. These are equal units that are delineated delineated by the language evening and morning. And I would submit to you this, despite the fact that many want to make little of this, these units are defined. These units called days are defined by this phrase evening and morning. I was talking with someone this week and the question came up and I, and I thought, okay, well, let's assume for a moment that God made the world... In six 24-hour literal days, how else would he tell us? How else would he tell us? If we assume for a moment that that is, in fact, the case, that that is true, as I believe, then how else would God tell us? That he's talking about days, days understood as 24-hour units marked by the passage of evening and morning. Another thing I would bring up is, look at verse 14 of chapter 1. And here I'm not giving a sort of exhaustive presentation of of a a viewpoint that holds to a literal 24-hour day view of these days in Genesis. But I want you to notice one other Thing, aside from the fact that these units of, of, uh, of work are, are delineated by these, this phrase evening and morning and there's no sense whatsoever that they're, di- that they're different from one another. So you can't say, well, this one took, you know, this many millions of years and this one took this many billions of years and this one took this many millions of years. There's, there's absolutely nothing in the text that distinguishes these units from one another. They all get the same delineation, evening and morning. But another thing I want you to see is in verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Now, here's the point I want to make there. Here we have a consciousness, think about this, a consciousness of, on behalf of the author that within this unit of text where we're being told day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, within this, this unfolding of, the, of this presentation of the days, we actually get the author conscious of the fact that there is a, a, an inherent distinction between a day and a year that tells us that if we are to read through these days, and, and get the sense that actually we're not talking about a day, we're talking about a year. And actually we're not talking about a year, we're talking about manifold years. We're talking about many years. It's hard for me to accept that that would be the case in a context where the author is clearly delineating between a day and a year. More, could much more could be said on that, but the larger point that I want to make is that God is ordering His creative work by dividing it into these distinct units. He's directing, He's dividing, and He is developing. That's the third thing I want you to see. He's developing. God progresses through His creation in a series of steps. These are unfolded as we go through the narrative of Genesis 1. There are steps. One task precedes another. Some have commented on what appears to be a pattern of forming on days 1 to 3 and filling on days 4 to 6. And so some have argued, well, when we come to Genesis 1, we're not talking about chronology at all. Because it's being logically grouped. And so this is called the framework Theory or the framework view. So in opposition to a 24-hour, in distinction from a 24-hour literal day view and a day age view, which would say that each of these days is actually an age of of an undisclosed amount of time, another view would be the framework view. And the framework view says that what we have here in verses 1 or in days 1 to 3 is a kind of forming it's a literary device it's a forming and then days 4 to 6 we have a filling and so the literary device which is logically grouping these days it kind of kind of sets aside a need to see this as chronological so that's one view out there not a view that i accept but one that is Out there. Nonetheless, we do appear to have a general structure like this a forming and a filling on the latter three days. And what it tells us is that God is developing His creation. God's work is methodical, it's logical, it's organized. And here's one thing that we need to see the steps act as a means directed towards his desired end. I want you to see that. It's very important. There's a relationship between the end and the means with God as a worker, that God is is developing his creation step by step, the means of which always directed towards the end to which it all points. So we have his developing, directing, dividing, developing, and then finally, I think we see here his distinguishing. God identifies and classifies his different works. So verse 4, and God separated the light from the darkness. Verse 7, God separated the waters. Verse 9, he gathered up the waters as distinct from the land. Here we see a God who is identifying things. He's parsing things out. He's setting this here and setting that there. He's distinguishing between the things he has made, and he is naming those various things. Verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Verse 8, God called the expanse heaven. And later, when we come to Genesis chapter 2, we will see that man names the animals. As God's image bearer and the one who is his representative to have dominion over the earth. That God does, a man does as God did. As God names things, man names things. All of this gives us a picture of a God who works in an orderly fashion. And I think there are several implications for us here as we move on to our final point. First... Simply, we worship. All of these things, all of the order in our world, all of the order that we see in the human mind, in the human eye, all the order that we see in cellular life, the, the smallest level, all of the beauty and complexity that we see in the universe, in space, in the various galaxies, all of this is meant to point us to this orderly maker. To this God who devises, who designs, who plans and intends and lays out and develops and distinguishes and names and does all this making and separating that we read about. We worship. Another thing that I think is very important for us is that we trust. Don't, do you see the plan Of this God, here's the amazing thing, is that this is eminently practical. We don't need to go somewhere else to get something practical. We have it right here. We are told that this God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom we call Abba, is a God with a plan from the very beginning. He's a God that works all things according to the counsel of His will. He works all things out for the what? The very good. And He works all things out for His own glory. And that tells us that just as God had a plan when He divided the waters, He has a plan in our lives every day. In the good and the seemingly bad. In the struggles and trials and in the joys of life. God is a God who has a design. He has a plan. And I would submit to you He cares far more for us, even now, than He does for fish and waters and birds. Lizards, dinosaurs, whatever. He cares for us, and we can trust Him. We can trust His plan. And finally, I want us to see that we learn and emulate. As those who are in God's image, I think we get a little bit of a theology of work. This is amazing when you think about it. We would go all over the place to find self-help books on how to work well. We will go all over the place to find books on what what we need to do in order to be effective and productive and efficient and fill in the blank of all the different self-help conferences that you could get out there. Let's just emulate our God. Here's what we're told. That we ought to direct our work towards a goal. That we should divide our work into rational units. That we should develop steps so that means reach an end. There are no dangling means. I mean, that's why we waste our time, right? We have dangling means. We're not headed towards the end. We get lost in the means, and then that becomes an end, and we forget that it's a means, and we come back, and then we get lost again, and so our day's gone, and then our week's gone, and then our decade's gone, and we die. I don't mean to present such a <laughs> hopeless picture of life, but I mean, so often that's what happens, right? We just flop from one thing to the next. We don't get anything done. I'm sure we've all struggled with that. God gives us a model for work that we develop steps so that means reach an end. This is practical for everybody in every area of life. We distinguish, we classify, we name, and we take dominion over things. Life doesn't control us. We have dominion over the world. We're not controlled by our environment or our circumstances, letting it always push us and move us and take dominion over us. We're told very clearly here that we're to take dominion over it. And one of the ways that we do that even is by doing all these things I've just mentioned, but also by distinguishing and classifying and taking dominion. That's why we have things like taxonomy. We name things. We name everything. Human beings are wired this way. Why? Because that's what our creator did. And we're made in his image. It's one of the first tasks of man in the Bible, so much of what we see around us can be defined, can be, can be brought back to what we read here in these opening chapters of Genesis. So we have here even, I think, a very practical, eminently practical guide for how to work well for the glory of God. So we see His word, we see His order, and thirdly, I want us to see, before we close, we see His delight. Throughout this chapter, the text puts two things together. God's seeing and God's approving. It begins at verse 14. Take a look there. Verse 14. I'm sorry. Verse 4. Verse 4. And God saw. Do you see that? However we're to understand that. God is incorporeal. He does not have a body. He is uh, immaterial. But he sees. And God saw that the light was Good. Here we see God seeing and God approving. The picture that we are left with is a God who delights in his work. This is a God, the image is is of a God who, who, who makes something and he stands back and he takes a look at it and he marvels at it and he says, good. All the way to the end as we get the God who says, very good. He takes delight in his work. And we see this idea repeated in the Psalms. So for example, Psalm 104, 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. God looks out at all the things that He has made. He delights in those things. And He rejoices in His works. In commenting on this psalm, John Piper gives five reasons why God rejoices in His works. I just want to read these off to you here. Because they are an expression of His glory. Because they praise Him. Because they reveal His incomparable wisdom, which I think is inherent in the idea of design and plan and order. Because they reveal His incomparable power. He made all things out of nothing. Because they point us beyond themselves to God Himself. And I think God's delight in His creation, as we finish up this morning, reminds us of two things. Two things that I think we can extract from this notion. First, as image bearers, we too should delight in our work. Now, some of us have things that we get paid to do or work that we have that we love to do. We enjoy it. Inevitably, there are aspects of what all of us do that we don't enjoy so much. Things that that we have to do that are much far more in the duty category in our minds than in the delight category. But what I think we are are encouraged to do here in emulation of our great creator God is no matter what we do, even going back to the person at at the time of the industrial revolution who's just sort of a cog in a machine 14 hours a day, the message would be the same, would be the same for all of us. We should delight in our work unto God. That's our work at home, with our kids, that's our work in serving our wives. That's our work that we get paid to do. Work that we don't get paid to do. Everything, all of our doing, we should delight in for the glory of God. And that, re- that comes to my final point, and that is, we realize that our work, as with the very first work, is construct- in constructing this universe is just that, for the glory of God. You see, God delighted in his work because his work glorified himself. Let me say, well, that's kind of self-serving. That's kind of a strange God. I mean, we recognize that's, that's not good uh, among humans. Well, of course it's not good among humans because humans aren't worthy of worship. But God is infinite. He is the I am. He is glorious and eternal. He is the only object of worship and praise. And so when God does his works, they are Inherently for His own glory. And that tells us that although we delight in our works, we fall short, we come short of idolizing our work. There's a difference between delighting in our work and idolizing our work. And it is when we are are most like God when we do both. Delight in it and glorify God through it. That's when human beings are expressing with regard to work the fact that we bear the image of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these verses of Scripture. We thank you for their power. Lord, we we trust that today, as your word has been looked at and Preached and sung and prayed, Father, that it has been effective. We ask that you would carry that along, that you would make it that much more fruitful. God, how glorious you are in your works. We rejoice in you, God, that you are the great creator. And although the world has been replacing you since the beginning, just a different version today than in ancient times but nonetheless, a rebellious idol. We worship you, God, the living God. We, d- we confess by faith, because of your grace, that the universe was made by the word of God. We trust you. Help us trust you more. We love you. Help us love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.